So this morning, we are continuing our summer series in the book of Psalms. And last week, we first looked at Psalm 1 and saw that the blessed life is the life that is transformed and shaped by the Word of God. To to truly experience the blessing that God has, it means that we know Christ, we know God, and have our hearts shaped by His Word, so we actually delight in Him and meditate and, and are formed and walk in His ways. Psalm 2 which biblical scholars believe sort of works in thematic tandem with Psalm 1, serves as part of this twin opening. So we kind of have these two twin chapters that open our book of Psalms. And Psalm 2 is a very interesting psalm in its content. It talks about nations and kings. Its language is actually quite political, if you think about it. And is it not interesting that the Psalms, which are the hymn book of God's people, would contain so much political language? Why is that? Well, as we've considered, the Psalms are meant to shape our hearts and meant to shape how we worship. And if we understand the importance of worship, this makes sense because what we worship shapes all of how we live our lives. It shapes how we spend our money. It shapes how we live in relationships. It shapes how we work. It it shapes even how we engage our world and respond to the cultural and political movements of our day. And a regular theme that you will see in the book of Psalms is that there is a conflict. There's a contrast. There's really a question that hangs over all of the people of God. Will you be shaped by God's word and the worship of him, or will you be shaped by the nations, the people, the culture, and the politics of your day. In our fallen, sinful, broken world where cultural and geopolitical events often bring pain and suffering and confusion, God very much wants his people to be shaped in his truth. He wants us as as his people to respond out of hearts that have been shaped by the Psalms. So as part of the introduction, what Psalms 2 does then is it expands what it means to live the blessed life. Now, not only do God's people follow a path or a lifestyle shaped by God's word and and delight in God's word, they also follow a king, That, that God has established a king, a leader, a ruler for us to follow. And if we want to truly live the blessed life, we follow this king. Blessed are those who take refuge in him as the psalm ends. And so rather than following the ways of nations or fearing the power of nations, God's people put their hope and put their trust in him by putting their hope and their trust in the king that he sends, the king that he provides. So here's my main point for us this morning from Psalm 2. When nations rage, God saves. So forgive the the rhyminess, somebody caught that, a little rhyminess to it, sorry. (laughs) But the truth is absolutely essential to us. When in the face of nations raging, in the face of pain and suffering and fear and confusion, when, when cultural and political events cause us to worry, our hearts must be shaped in the rest, in the comfort, knowing that God's salvation comes through a king who has saved us and is redeeming our world. So we're going to break this down into two parts, nations raging and then God saving. So our first point, nations will rage. This is what verses one through three say. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in the Old Testament framework, this word nations, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, can talk about sort of an ethnic and political group of people. But there's also sort of a spiritual dimension to that. And often when you see the word nations in the Old Testament, it's referring to those people who oppose God. Those who oppose the people of God. So you had the nation of Israel who were the people of God. Then you had all the other nations that followed false gods and were often at odds with Israel. And so what this psalm is saying is that these nations, these nations that oppose God, are raging. And so the word raging literally means loud commotion. So if you ever walked into a room and people are full of sort of angsty commotion and there's kind of this loud murmur and people are unsettled and upset and there's sort of this bubbling conflict just below the surface, that's the picture here. This is the posture, this is the heart posture of the nations towards God. They're angsty and they're hostile and they're sort of murmuring loudly and all of that is leading them to plot. So what is fascinating, there's a connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 here. The word plot is the exact same word in Hebrew, the same verb in Hebrew, as the word meditate in Psalm 1. So in contrast to the people of God who meditate on the word of God and are shaped by the word of God, the nations plot, they meditate on ways to oppose God. Their hearts are being shaped in sin and rebellion. And what this leads them to is devising ways to throw off the authority of God, to oppose the goodness and the authority of God, breaking the bonds here, bursting the bonds, casting away cords. This is a picture of, I don't want your authority anymore, God. You don't control me. You don't hold on to me. You don't get to tell me how to live my life. We're going to do it on our own. We're going to define good and evil on our own. We're going to define who we are. We're going to go about it in our own authority, in our own way. So what we have here at the beginning of Psalm 2 is really a picture of the heart of sin and rebellion. God, you have no authority over me. God, I will do what I want to do. And in fact, I will plan and plot ways to remove any sort of authority, any sort of way that you hold on to me. The nations oppose God. And so Psalm 2, what this means for us, church, is utterly realistic about the world we live in. Utterly realistic about the things we will face following Christ in this world. Because understand this, that there are people, there are nations, there are rulers, there are cultures, there are political systems that oppose our God. They, they stand opposed to him and they purposely plot and plan and build systems and structures that stand against him. And also understand this, to follow Jesus in this world, you're not going to be left alone. It's not as if the world is just going to kind of go, okay, you can just sort of hang out over here by yourself. No, you will face opposition. The, the nations rage not only against God, but also his anointed. Now we'll talk about who that is specifically, but the idea is, is anyone who belongs to God will also be opposed. Like, this is the reality of life in a fallen, broken world. This is the reality that we will face. And so Psalm 2 is just causing us to be honest about that reality. And this is true even for us who live in the United States. E even though in many ways 
our country has been unique in the ways that it has been shaped by Christianity and our culture has, has actually had some foundations of righteousness and goodness in it. Ultimately, this is a fallen sinful nation just like any other. And so there are systems and, and powers both in culture and in politics that oppose God. And what's fascinating about us right now is we're, we seem to be living in a time where things are shifting and changing pretty rapidly. You see, for up until probably the past five or so years, here's sort of how the church was treated in culture. Uh, yeah, you're backwards. Uh, you're you're kind of like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. You know, you're a nice guy, but you're a little weird. And, and, and you're kind of like holding on to sort of backwards, antiquated ways. And so you probably should just go, you know, off in the corner and, and leave everybody alone because you're kind of annoying. And, and so there was more of an indifference, more of a, yeah, that's what you believe, but I believe this over here, and okay, we'll move on. That's not really how it's going anymore. The, the shift is not, hey, the church is outdated, and, and the church is sort of backwards and weird, and yeah, if that's what you want to believe, go ahead and believe that over there. No, now... Christianity, biblical faith, biblical morals and ethics are seen not just as weird, but as a problem, as actually a threat, as a threat to people's freedom. And, and we are being viewed as bigots and those who actually are harmful to society. So writing an article reflecting on the culture, this is what Stephen McAlpin writes about what is happening in the last five or six years, the culture is increasingly interested in bringing the church back into the public square. Yes, you heard that right, but not in order to hear it, but rather in order to flay it, expose its real and alleged abuses, and to render it naked and shivering before a jeering crowd. It is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up before the statue of gold whilst everyone else is groveling and going, Psst, kneel down for goodness sake. It is officials conspiring with the king to show that Daniel's act of praying towards Jerusalem three times per day is not simply an archaic and foolish hope, but a very real threat to the order of the society and the new moral order that will hold it together. We're not going to be ignored. We're not going to be seen as silly and backward and ignorant and Ned Flanders-like anymore. We're going to be treated increasingly with open hostility, Look, this is not me trying to be all doom and gloom. I'm not somebody that can sort of just like prophesy exactly the, the way our culture is going to go, but we need to be honest about the direction it is heading. As further proof, here's an editorial from the New York Times, April 2015. This is written by a man named Frank Bruni. He writes this, Our debate about religious freedom should include a conversation about freeing religions and religious people from prejudices that they didn't cling to and can indeed jettison, much as they've jettisoned other aspects of their faith's history, rightly bowing to the enlightenments of modernity. Religion is going to be the final holdout and most stubborn refuge for homophobia. It will give license to discrimination. It will cause gay and lesbian teenagers in fundamental, fundamentalist households to agonize needlessly. You hear this? He is saying that Christian faith needs to submit to modernity. That your faith upholding biblical sexual ethics and biblical understanding of gender identity will be harmful, will cause psychological and emotional damage. 
This is how our culture is increasingly seeing our faith, raging, plotting against our God and our faith. And if you see what's happening in our culture and the ways that the laws are going and the ways that our culture is being shaped, they're trying to drive out any vestiges of our faith and any influence of our faith. I mean, it is becoming increasingly so that if a politician holds to biblical understanding of morality, they're going to be less and less likely to be voted into office. This is real. This is happening. This is not just alarmism. And we need to come to grips with the reality. We need to consider how Psalm 2 calls us to face the world we live in. It also raises this question, what's our response going to be? How are we going to respond to such opposition? Because here's what can happen. On the one hand, such opposition can kind of throw us. Being called a bigot is a really, really, really hard thing to swallow. If you've ever had anybody claim that your faith actually is harmful, what does that do to you inside? I mean, in many ways, you're like, wait, I'm not a bigot, am I? I'm not opposing freedom and social order, am I? Am I trying to cause psychological and emotional damage to people? Like, if you're told that often enough, it's very easy to start to question your beliefs and question your assumptions. And what can happen is, is we can start shaving off sort of the rough edges. We can start to back off, maybe shut up about certain things. Maybe start to hold back, play close to the best, or maybe even just completely rethink our convictions altogether. Maybe parts of the Bible aren't quite accurate. Maybe some of the apostles and some of the disciples in the first century had a misunderstanding of human nature. Maybe we can rethink how we think about biblical and sexual ethics. So we can doubt. Or maybe you can say, hey, you know what? The world's going to hell in a handbasket, so I'm just going to hide out in my bunker until Jesus comes. Um, You know what? I'm not even going to face it. I'm just going to retreat from the world, retreat from culture, and just call it a day. Or... And this is what I think many of us sort of feel a temptation to do, is we can throw up our fists and decide we're going to fight back. And so we become ultimate cultural warriors, just like this guy. (laughs) Some of you that remember old school WWE, you remember the ultimate warrior. We can go full on ultimate warrior and go at the culture. And so what we want to do is we want to fight for our power. We want to fight for our voice. And so it becomes opposing anyone who would take freedom and rights away from us, anyone who would try to shut down our influence in culture. And so what ends up happening is this. The church becomes just another entity in society grabbing for power. We give all of our hope, we give all of our energy to grabbing whatever cultural power we can get, holding on to whatever cultural power we can hold on to. And so we play the political game. Which is it for you? Which one do you tend to run to? Do you tend to be the person who can kind of start doubting your faith? Do you be the person that can sort of just say, I'm going to retreat from the world? Or are you the person that, man, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to start grabbing and fighting for power? See, wherever your heart runs to exposes where your hope is. Like if you think your hope is in making peace with the culture, then that's what you'll do. If you think your hope is in retreating from the culture, well, then that's what you'll do. If your hope is in thinking that, man, we have to grab power and control the culture, then that's what you'll run to. What is it for you? 
And let me even ask this question to those of you that wouldn't profess faith in Christ. What's your hope? Because uh, here, here's, here's what we can, I think, agree on. Like, let's just for a moment set aside where we disagree about definitions of good and evil and sin and righteousness. And let's just all agree on this point. Our culture is broken. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of injustice. What is your hope for that getting fixed? What's your hope for redemption and restoration and reconciliation? So Psalm 2 is honest about the brokenness, honest about the opposition. The nations will rage. But it's the very place that the nations rage, the very place that we experience fear or uncertainty or the desire to fight or confusion, that Psalm 2 breaks in with a greater hope for us, a more powerful hope for us, a hope that isn't dependent upon us. You see, when the nations rage, God saves. He saves. Here's what Psalm 2 says about how God responds to all this raging and plotting. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs. Well, what an interesting response. He sees the plotting and the raging of the nations, and his first move is laughs. He holds them in derision, meaning he mocks. So when I was a kid, I had a ton of action figures. Man, I had the G.I. Joes, I had the Transformers, I had the superheroes, I had the little green army men. I mean, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, I had the action figures. And my, my brother and I, my friends, we come home from school and we play for hours. And here's what I do. I would take all the bad guy action figures and I would concoct this plot of world domination. Like, I would, I, would, I mean, it was a more massive plot than anything you saw in an action movie or superhero movie. I mean, I went big. The bad guys, they were going to go after all the good guys and this plot was going to damage the whole world. However, were my action figures ever really in danger of taking over the world? No. Like, if you saw me playing back then, you'd probably think, man, that kid takes his action figures a little too seriously. But you would never worry that my action figures were actually a threat to you and to the world order. This is God's attitude towards the nations. This is God's attitude towards the nations raging and plotting. You're like kids playing at action figures. Now, this doesn't mean that the cultural and political sort of raging and plotting that takes place doesn't inflict real evil and real suffering and real pain. Like for those of us that live in this world, we have to live with that evil and that suffering and that pain. It actually affects our lives. But what Psalm 2 points us to is that compared to the power of God, all of these leaders, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how much damage they inflict, they're nothing but kids playing at toys compared to the power of God. Church, do you believe our God is sovereign? Do you believe that our God is in control? Do you believe that our God is all-powerful over every ruler and every power and every authority on this earth? look, I know that there is a tension between understanding God's sovereignty and human evil and how those things exist side by side. But scripture doesn't hold up God's sovereignty as sort of a Rubik's Cube puzzle to be solved. It holds us up to give us something to rest in, to trust in, to put our hope in. That's why God laughs. That's why we should take hope in the fact that God's laughing at their evil because we know no matter how bad it gets, 
They can't dethrone God. Why do the nations rage? That is a rhetorical question. That is a mocking question. Why do you bother? This is what God says. You can't threaten my power. You can't actually overtake my authority. You can't dethrone me. Why do you bother? And so church, there's great hope for us here. There's great comfort for us here in the fact that God looks at the nations and sees their power as nothing. At the same time, Though God laughs and he mocks, it doesn't mean that he's indifferent. It doesn't mean he just sort of laughs and mocks while we suffer. No, God has actually done something and intends to do something about the evil and about the the suffering, about the way the nations rage and the way that they plot. This is why he sends a king. Verses 5 through 9. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in opposition to the kings and the rulers of the nations, God is going to send his own king. And this king will defeat the nations. He'll defeat their evil. He's going to smash their systems and structures as if someone's smashing a clay pot. And what this is, is a reflection of a promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7. So in 2 Samuel 7, we're not going to go there and read the whole thing, but God establishes a covenant with David and his descendants. And really what Psalm 2 is, is a poetic rendering of this covenant. And so here's some of the highlights from 2 Samuel 7. I'd encourage you to, to read this when you go home this afternoon. This is 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, roughly. This is what the covenant that God makes with David looks like. God says he's going to make a great name for David. That he's going to appoint a place for his people Israel and he's going to plant them. And through David, violent men shall afflict them no more. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Then he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then I will be to him, this is referring to David's son, a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what this is talking about is God's promise to establish a kingship, a kingly line. And through this line, this king would defeat the enemies of God. And so God was going to bless David and bless David's son, speaking specifically about Solomon, and then bless a son's who would come after. And they are going to defeat evil. They were going to plant God's people in a place and give them rest from their enemies, establish worship, and bring justice and righteousness and flourishing. So, so here's the hope for Psalm 2, from Psalm 2, that rightly established and rightly understood, like kingship is meant to be a blessing to God's people. And then Psalm 2 talks about the beautiful intent that God wants to use this king for. He's going to rule over all the nations, over all the ends of the earth. So this is a promise that righteousness and justice and peace and flourishing are going to spread through the entire world. This wasn't just going to be one little spot of land, but the entire world. This is how God is going to deal with all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the pain, all of the suffering that inflicts our world. He's going to send a king. He's going to bless and anoint a king who's going to be a blessing to God's people and a blessing to God's world. 
How do you respond to that? So here's God holding out a promise to send a king, to send a leader, to, to deal with the evil, to fix what is broken, to bring restoration and redemption. How do you respond to that promise? How do you respond to that idea? I think there's a part of us that really responds to this. Because we are made in the image of God and because God has embedded certain things into our spiritual and emotional and psychological DNA, there's a part of us that just resonates with the idea of someone coming and saving the day. Someone coming to rescue and set right what is broken. This is why every culture has myths and stories of sort of a savior, a hero. This is why we love stories, and this is why we love movies like Star Wars and The Matrix and Lord of the Rings. This is why even after 578 superhero movies, I will still be first in line for the next one. It's because we love stories of heroes. We're drawn to great heroic leadership, people who can save and fix what is broken, who can push back darkness and defeat evil, people who can actually even save us from ourselves, who can give us our lives meaning and purpose, who can inspire and teach us how to be better people and to give our lives for something good. Like we're drawn to this stuff. And we don't even necessarily only look for it in stories. This is why we're drawn to strong political leaders or military heroes or successful businessmen or famous athletes or even coaches and parents and teachers. Like there's a part of us that wants God, wants God to bless a leader who we will receive blessing from and who will fix what is broken. But we're also cynical, right? Well, we're also cynical about such leaders because we've been let down enough. We've seen that too often leaders, who they present themselves in public to be, is not who they are in private. We see that there's hypocrisy. We see that there is failure. We see that for all their promises, they're not able to keep them. I think this cynicism is wonderfully captured in the lyrics by some of the great modern-day American poets, Nickelback. Some of you are thinking, man, if he quotes Nickelback, the Holy Spirit is going to leave this place. (laughs) He might. So pray he stays. (laughs) In their song, Hero, here's how the lyrics go. And some of you, this song is going to be stuck in your head. I'm sorry for the rest of the day. I'm sorry about this. But, and they say that a hero can save us. I'm not going to stand here and wait. Someone told me love would all save us. But how can that be? Look at what love gave us. A world full of killing and blood spilling. That world never came. See, our heroes fall. Our heroes fail us to the point where we look and say, why bother? Why bother putting my trust in another politician or another leader or another coach or another teacher or even perhaps your parents? We see that for all the promises of change, Our world is largely the same. For all the promises of fixing what is broken, there it is. For for all the promises of leading us into a better life, we have to look and say, hey, look, I'm still broken. I'm still a mess. And so we get cynical. And look, it was the same thing for Israel. Because look, David, for all the good that he did, there was a time where he defeated God's enemies and brought peace to the nation of Israel. 
but his sin caused an incredible amount of dysfunction and caused social chaos. And then Solomon, who elevated Israel to even greater heights and brought greater peace and greater flourishing and built this wonderful temple for God's people to worship him in. At the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom divided. For all his greatness, his sin caused a split in the kingdom. And then from there, it just went downhill. All the nations, all the kings of the northern kingdom, sinful, rebellious. The kings of the southern kingdom, they were a mixed bag. But at the end of that, you couldn't help but relate to the fact that Israel probably was somewhat skeptical of their kings. Somewhat maybe even skeptical of the promise of Psalm 2, that God was going to send a king to save. And so we can be cynical. We, we can consider this promise that is held out for us in Psalm 2 and go, really? I don't really see that happening. Does, does this mean that God's promise has failed? Does this mean our, our hopes are destined to end in disappointment and cynicism? Does, does this mean that it's actually just up to us to try to fix it or do the best we can until whatever happens, happens? Again, I want to ask those of you that wouldn't profess faith in Christ. Well, what do you do with the failed hopes and the cynicism and the, the, the broken promises of leaders and the people you put your hope and trust in and thought that they were going to fix what is broken? What do you do with all that? I want us to lean into that cynicism, but I also want us to lean into the hope that resonates in our heart because Psalm 2 holds out something for us far greater Psalm 2 actually validates our hope and cuts through our cynicism. Because what Psalm 2 is actually pointing to is not a human king. It's not David. It's not Solomon. It's not the political leader. It's not the business leader. It's not the coach. It's not the teacher. It's not your parents. It's not a human king. Because what the authors of the New Testament recognized is that Psalm 2 was pointing to a greater king. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, pointing to Jesus Christ. Here's what the authors of Hebrews understood, and the author, the, the, the apostles and the disciples understood about Psalm 2. You see, David and Solomon as kings, they were merely shadows of the king that was to come. So, so you understand how a shadow works, right? Like if I stand here and my shadow is cast right here, like, my shadow has my shape, right? But is my shadow me? No, no, no. Shadow represents the actual me. David and Solomon, the, these kings, these great kings, weren't the actual substance of the promise. They, they weren't the thing that Israel was supposed to ultimately put their hope in because they were flawed, sinful, broken men. And we don't put our hope in sinful, flawed, broken men. We put our hope in a king, that is not sinful, that is not broken, that is not flawed. The author of Hebrews, looking at Psalm 2, saw the fulfillment of the Son. Not in a son, not in a human that God would sort of look at and say, hey, I'm going to adopt you as a son and have that kind of son-fathery relationship. No, it was pointing to the Son, the Son of God, the perfect, sinless loving, righteous, good son of God who stepped into our world and he perfectly loved us and he perfectly served us. And here's the great hope and great promise is that when he entered into our world, he took on, head on, 
all the evil, all the suffering, all the brokenness of our world. And so Jesus confronted sickness and disease by healing it. He, he confronted evil spiritual forces by casting out demons. He defeated death itself by raising people from the dead. He dismantled the, the evil and corrupt political and religious leaders of the day. Oh, Jesus went after the evil as the king in Psalm 2. But the way he ultimately saved us, the way he ultimately de- dealt with evil is the most counterintuitive way. You see, we think of kings, we think of leaders defeating evil through might and victory. We think of political victory and military victory. But the greatest victory that Jesus won is counterintuitive because he won it by dying. He won it by giving his life up. He won it by letting evil strike him down. But here's what Colossians 3 tells us. Colossians 3 tells us this, that when Jesus was on the cross, when he was spread out, vulnerable, this is what he essentially was saying. Evil, take your best shot. Give it all you have. Unload all of your evil, all of your shame, all of your scorn, all of your oppression, all of your wickedness on me. And what Colossians 3 says, in doing that, he put the evil spiritual forces and rulers and authority to open shame exposing them, exposing them, showing them that they have no power, exposing them and showing them that they do not win, that the final verdict, the final word is not evil winning, but Christ defeating them. Because in his resurrection, he defeated all evil. He defeated all oppression. He defeated all sin. This is our hope for us, church. You see, evil gave it its best shot at Jesus, and he got back up. What this means for us is that no matter how bad the nations rage, no matter how bad evil gets, no matter how much oppression and wickedness infects and inflicts our culture and our world, Jesus has defeated it all because he took its best shot and he was raised from the dead. This is how our king accomplished victory, by exposing evil as powerless. So how do we respond How should we respond to a king who has defeated all evil? Well, for those who are in political and cultural power, there's a warning in verses 10 through 12, but also a promise. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's a be wise Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, and follow the Lord. Kiss the Son. This is an act of reverence and submission and worship. And so the rulers, cultural and political rulers of our day, Psalm 2 says, be wise, because your power will not stand. For for all the power and authority that you think you have, whether it be leaders in the United States or leaders in Russia or leaders in China or leaders in South Africa, wherever, know that you are called to submit to the one true king. And if you do not, he will bring judgment and justice to you. But there's also a call and a warning for us here. Because look, the problem isn't just out there. It's in here. We're part of the problem we perpetuate the system. 
Jesus came not just to die to defeat the evil without, but the evil within. He came not just to defeat the evil in the cultural and political rulers, but to defeat the evil that lives in our own hearts. And this is the glorious truth of the cross, is that Jesus took all of the sin that you and I have committed and inflicted on other people, all of the judgment that you and I rightfully deserve on himself. He willfully let God judge him in our place. Jesus was struck down. He was broken as a clay pot, as it were, for you and for me. And so in that, we can know forgiveness. In that, we can be redeemed. In that, we can be restored. We can be brought into a right relationship. We can be blessed. And so the call is kiss the son. Run to the good king. Run to the gracious king. Worship the one who has life and truth and goodness and beauty in him. Take refuge in him and be blessed. So in closing, I wanted to give us a picture of just what this looks like because in Acts 4, we see a beautiful picture of the church being shaped by this very psalm. See, the, the backstory in Acts 4 is that Peter and John had been arrested for healing a man. And the religious and political leaders brought them in front of them and said, hey, you don't get to preach Jesus anymore. You're done preaching Jesus. And they said, well, whether we should listen to God or listen to you, you be the judge, but we're going to keep preaching Jesus. And so they warned him, and then they let him go. And here is the response. This is in Acts 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage in the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So what does it mean, church, to be shaped by Psalm 2 in the midst of a culture that opposes us? Well, first, what we see here is this is a worshiping community. They're lifting up their voices in praise and in prayer. Psalm 2 gives them such great hope that they're going to worship their way through opposition. Not throw up their fists in anger, not retreat away and, and hide in fear, but worship God openly and joyfully and celebrate the great victory that God has accomplished. And so church, let us be a worshiping community, even in the midst of opposition. But they're also a trusting community. Look, they, they saw that this opposition was part of the sovereign plan of God. They looked at the opposition. They looked at the fact that the rulers and the leaders actually struck Christ down and opposed the, him, and now they were being opposed, but they trusted in the Lord. They said, Lord, look on their threats. We, we, we entrust ourselves to you, and here's the great hope for us, church. No matter where evil comes from, no matter how it is trying to 
inflict its damage on your life. God is sovereign over it. God has control over it. This may mean that he rescues you. He may completely pulls you out of it. But even if he doesn't, even if it inflicts its pain and its power on you, here is the great hope and great truth. Christ is with you. He is with you in it. He is empowering you in it. And even if it strikes you down, here's the great hope. You will outlast it. You will be raised up again. It will not keep you down. It will not defeat you. And this is what the disciples and the apostles understood. That no matter how bad it got, God was with them. And then finally, it made them bold. Through worshiping, through trusting, they were bold. They rejoiced that they got to share the gospel and they prayed, God, give us more opportunities. They didn't fear. They didn't hold back. They didn't doubt God's word. They boldly proclaimed. They went and made disciples. And so church, for us, let us be that community. Let us be those who go and proclaim the gospel. Let us worship. Let us trust. And let us go into our world and make disciples. Come what may. I don't know how bad it's going to get. I'm not a prophet. But regardless, our God is good. He is sovereign. He has defeated evil through Jesus Christ. And he is with us. So let us be faithful and let us go into our world and make disciples. Amen.